Matthew 5, 13 to 16. Hear the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, we pray this morning that you would use your word in print to connect us to the word in person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his holy name. Amen. Well, a major emphasis in Matthew's gospel leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first major teaching block of Jesus as recorded for us by Matthew, is that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. It has come, the scriptures speak in that tense. It is coming, the scriptures also speak in that tense. And it will come, it will finally be consummated. And we're part of those many generations in between the already and the not yet. And another major emphasis right off the bat setting the tone, I would say, for the entire Sermon on the Mount is this idea that the kingdom of Christ is making itself manifest in the world. It's making its presence known in the world. It's making its influence known in the world and will continue to do so. But it's doing so in a way in which the world would least expect. It's not coming in power. It's not coming in might. It's not coming by the sword. It's not coming by military conquest. It's not a geopolitical kingdom, certainly not at this stage of the game. And the Beatitudes set the tone for that. If you miss the Beatitudes, I'm afraid you really miss a lot of context for the whole sermon. And as we've made our way through the Beatitudes, we've seen Jesus describing his disciples. And they're in ways that the world would not expect. They are poor. They are mournful of their spiritual condition. They're meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. They will be persecuted. This is all a description of Christian character. And that character, totally what the world would never expect, is now begun to be described as something that's going to ooze into the world and subtly and slowly, but sure as rain and constant, it is going to have an influence in this world. I think the idea here is the Beatitudes are the essential character of the disciples and flowing from that root you will begin to see fruit and that fruit, as unexpected as that fruit is in the eyes of the world, will begin to have an influence. And that is exactly the two illustrations, the two metaphors that Jesus transitions into in our passage this morning. 
The metaphors of salt and light are illustrations describing the resulting influence of being in the kingdom of God, of being one of those whose heart is regenerate by the Holy Spirit and who is showing these types of characteristics that are commended in the Beatitudes. I love the metaphors of Jesus. I love how earthy they are. I love how timeless they are, how universal they are. No doubt that's purposeful. That is part of a uh, design of a master communicator. You think of things like bread, water, here, salt, light. They're as universal as can be. Everybody can relate to them. Everyone understands, even in our own day. Salt. Salt in the ancient world was one of the most common of all the preservatives. You keep in mind they had no refrigerators. They had no deep freezes. The Mediterranean world was a largely tropical climate, and salt was used for one purpose, so that meat would not go bad, so that fish would not go bad, so that cheese would not go bad. We do the same thing today. We still have cheese today that's preserved by salt. Many parts of the world today... Salt is a primary preservative, especially if there is no refrigeration. Salt resists spoilage. Salt slows putrefaction, the the rotting process. So when Jesus says those who follow him are the salt of the earth, and I, I love that metaphor. In fact, I can honestly say to this day, You know, that's a very common phrase in our English language. I I use that all the time. I I think the highest compliment I can pay somebody is salt of the earth. Salt of the earth. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. That those who follow him, those who follow his teachings, those who display these beatitude attitudes, they will have an effect on a world that is rotting. They will have a preserving effect to some degree. They will have a purifying effect to some degree. They will have a flavoring effect to some degree. And if you see this clearly, and I think you see this in both of the metaphors, both salt and light, I think this helps us steer clear from what I perceive to be perhaps two of the greatest opposing errors in the history of the church. There's always been these two opposing errors that seem to exist in tension, and they relate to the understanding of a Christian's social responsibility. What is our responsibility in society? That's what he just said. You're, You're a member of the kingdom. This is what you will look like. This is the attitude that will flow out of a regenerate heart. What is your responsibility in society? And I think the first error could be described as this. It's the thought that this world is not that bad of a place and it will become better and better even to the point of being perfected through Christian social action. So if we take the Beatitudes, for example, as a blueprint for social reform and we enact these and we do it well enough, good enough, often enough, widely enough, we can turn this world of darkness into a world of light. We can turn this world that is rotting into a world that is forever preserved. This idea that 
the mission of Christians in society is first and foremost social reform. And if we set our minds to it and our hands to it and our feet to it, we can turn creation into a utopia. The fact of the matter is, and I think this comes through in both of these metaphors, if you really understand the full implications here, you can look at this world and you can see healthy spots at times and you can see bright spots at times and you can see plenty of things to be thankful for and things that at times seem to be going right. But fundamentally, and I think this is what drives the metaphor, before Christ returns, this world is rotten and it is continuing to rot. And until Christ returns, this world is dark and it will continue to be in darkness. In fact, we could look at Romans 1. You're familiar with the passage. I think it's indicative of um, the message of all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. The world has a tendency, and this is true of every society, toward entropy. You're familiar with the law of entropy. It declines. Human societies decline. They decline into disorder. They are marked by men and women who will consistently love evil over good. They are marked by men and women whose values and standards are the opposite of what the scriptures teach. They will decline over time and they will do this until one society after another collapses they become distorted. They become rotten. And you look at the history of humanity, and that, that bears out, I think, both scripturally and historically. Christians, in this metaphor, both of these metaphors, are set into a world that's rotting. They're set into a world that's dark. And the point seems to be, we're here to hinder the process. We're here to slow it down, we're here to show glimpses of the gospel, glimpses of hope, glimpses of a better way, glimpses of a better future. God intends in this period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus for his people who've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit to penetrate this rotting world, penetrate this dark world, we're like salt rubbed into the meat. We're like points of light in a room that is dark. Slow it down and give it some flavor. Not permanently fix it. I don't think that's ever held out in Scripture, that we're going to permanently fix it and turn it into a utopia. That's one extreme. I think another error on the other end is total despair. You look at this world... And there are pockets of Christianity that have done this and to do this today. You look at this world, and because it's so rotten, and because it's so dark, and because it's going to persecute those who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and follow after his ways and live a life that's reflective of these beatitudes, there's a tendency, or has been on the other extreme, to just completely disassociate. I will retreat from this world. 
I will retreat into seclusion. I will join my own little community. I will raise my own crops. I'll have my own rules for living. I will have nothing to do with this world. And that's gone by several names in church history too. Monasteries or compounds. Cults sometimes. And I would say that plays right against these metaphors as well. I think these metaphors clearly show this is this mitigates against any tendency to withdraw from society totally, to separate from society, society totally. I think the answer to both of these errors, and you see this right here in these metaphors, is yes, the world is decaying, we're not going to fix it. Yes, the world is dark, we're not going to fix it, but what we can do is be a preserving force, a point of light, a bit of flavor, a little preservative wherever the Lord has put us to serve. I found a great quote years ago by James Russell Lowell, 19th century poet, abolitionist. He said this, I think this is very true. Quote, show me a place on the face of the earth, 10 miles square, where a man may provide for his children in decency and comfort, where age is venerated, where womanhood is protected, where human life is held in due regard. This is 19th century. And I will show you a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone before and laid the foundation. I think that's a very true observation. Just looking at the history of the world. Christianity has an effect of being a light in a world of darkness, of bringing a little hope in a world of hopelessness, of bringing a little flavor in a world that is tasteless. And I think the basic truth that lies behind both of these metaphors is this distinction between the church and the world. On the one hand, he says in verse 13, you have the earth. But on the other hand, we have us, the earth's salt. On the one hand, you have the world in its darkness. But on the other hand, you have us, the disciples of Christ, who are points of light. That, that's a contrast there. The, the world is a dark place. It has no light. It has a constant tendency to deteriorate and move toward darkness. The world is a rotting place that's tasteless and it's, it's putrefying. It can't stop itself from going bad, but the church is placed in here and individual disciples are placed in here within the body of the church to hinder the process of social decay, to, to provide lights to dispel social darkness here and there. We're not going to fix the whole thing before Christ returns. But we can be points of light, we can be points of hope, we can be points of taste, we can be points of preservative. And he, he adds this, this rider, and this is very important to both of these, and I think this is what helps us navigate and, and avoid both of these extremes of either thinking that we are primarily called to create a utopia or totally surrendering to a dystopia that we can do nothing about and secluding ourselves from it. But both of these have a rider. Both of these parallel metaphors have a rider, a condition. The light must shine. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. By definition, 
You would never think of lighting a light and sticking it under a basket. That makes no sense. A light is meant to shine. Wherever you are, you're meant to shine. Salt is meant to preserve. Salt is meant to increase taste. If it's lost its taste, Jesus says it's no good anymore. The salt must retain its saltiness. The light must shine its light. And if we're indistinguishable from the world around us, we're useless. That's the point of both of these metaphors. Let me make another point about salt that I think is just brilliant here. And I think very important. I think very telling. Salt is one of the most common compounds in existence that we know of on earth. It's everywhere. It is everywhere. It's as common and ordinary as can be. And I think that's very intentional. I think it's very telling that in this metaphor, Jesus does not say, and you find this in other places in the Bible, salt. Jesus does not say you are the gold of the earth. That's a real difference, I think. Jesus does not say you are the diamonds of the earth. Jesus does not say you are the uranium of the earth or you are the frankincense of the earth. He says you're the salt of the earth. I think when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, I think that's just another way of saying I delight in using the common things, the ordinary things, the poor things, the unexpected things, the weak things. Or, going back to the Beatitudes, I delight in using the broken things, the contrite things, the hungry things, the thirsty things, the meek things, the peacemaking things, all of these things that the world does not delight in using. The world laughs at those things. There's a great commentary on this in 1 Corinthians. Let me just, if if you have just a second to turn, turn to 1 Corinthians first. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul picks up on this. I think this is the very idea. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. The weak, the foolish, the despised, the common, the ordinary. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to Worldly standards, you see that contrast. Not many were powerful, again, according to worldly standards. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish. He didn't choose the gold, he chose the salt. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. This theme of of God choosing the common, the ordinary, the weak, the despised, whatever the world wants to call it, it it just runs like a a thread throughout the whole of Scripture. 
You see it all the way in the Old Testament. I think of David. When God called David to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines, he did it with a sling and a few small stones. Completely unexpected. Completely against what the world would call. That is, that's the definition of the foolish and the weak so that God gets the credit and the glory and the honor when Christ was born. He wasn't born in the courts of royalty and the courts of Caesars and to a woman of nobility. He's born in the backwaters and he's born to a, a poor peasant girl that probably didn't even know how to read, who wasn't married at the time. It's the most unlikely origin story you can possibly imagine. And then here's Jesus at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Think about who his audience is here. This is a bunch of Palestinian, Palestinian peasants. These people probably can't read or write. And they are in the backwater of the world. From a worldly perspective, it makes no sense. And he comes to these Palestinian peasants. Who the world would look at and despise and reject and laugh at. And he says to these peasants, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Your influence and your, your reach is going to be so far as these next centuries and millennia unfold before the coming of Christ. You would not even believe it. I think this is also an encouragement. It, that's an encouragement that God uses the foolish. But I think this is also an encouragement when you consider the fact that this is an indicative, just like the Beatitudes, and not an imperative. An imperative is a command to go do something. An indicative is a statement of fact. And here's the statement of fact. And this, this is the running theme so far in the Sermon on the Mount. He opens with a statement of fact. You are blessed. You've done nothing to be blessed. You've done nothing to earn that blessing. You can do nothing to do, earn that blessing. You're blessed because God in His grace and mercy has looked upon you in Jesus Christ. He's done all the work. He gives you the blessing. But then this continues into verse 13. He doesn't say... Go be salt. He says you are salt. Christ has made you salt. You are the light of the world. Christ has made you the light of the world. You may think you're small. You may think you're insignificant. You may think you're the butt of the world's jokes. You are. You may be laughed at, scorned, persecuted, passed over for a promotion, made fun of at school, you may think you are powerless in the world's eyes. You are. Jesus says, let me tell you what I think about you. You are salt. You are the light of the world. You are my societal preservative. You are my all natural flavoring in a world that's decaying. Just go be that. Just be that. Just be salt. Be a preservative. Give it some taste. Give it some flavor. Give it some zest. This world is bland. Go be salt in a bland world. This world offers all kinds of pleasures and people chase them and you're disappointed one after the other. They're unsatisfying. 
What's different about Christians? What's different about Christianity? We know something. Not anything we can boast about. Just like Paul said, if you boast, boast in the Lord. But we know something. We know something about eternity. We know something about joy. We know something about peace. We know something different than the world knows. We, know some, we have something to offer that the world doesn't have to offer. Go give it some flavor. Another great quote I've held on to for years, Oliver Wendell Holmes. He said this, I might have entered, entered the ministry. I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. That's a sad commentary. We're not undertakers. We're flavor givers. We're all natural preservatives. Jesus had that zest. You don't see Jesus going around like an undertaker. He's frequently raising the spirits of people. He tells the truth. He tells it like it is. He gives the good, the bad, and the ugly. But how often is he encouraging people, inspiring people, lifting people up, giving a message of hope, giving a message of salt to dying people, giving a message of light to people living in darkness? What an encouraging reminder that this world, we can say in so many ways, is crumbling and decaying and falling into decline and disorder all around us. But because Jesus Christ has been a light to us, because Jesus Christ has been salt to us, we can go out and just be and have an influence to the glory of God. Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Gracious. Gracious. I look at this world. It's hard to argue that this world does not need a little more salt, a little more graciousness, a little more light. And as we go out and we engage in good works and we bear witness to Christ and we bear witness to the truth of his gospel and we just be, we just live it out. We live out the Beatitudes, the, the, the be attitudes. We're not ashamed of who we are, or who we're called to be. People will see us. Yes, some will scorn. Yes, some will hate. Yes, some will deride and some will pity and, and some will persecute. There's going to be some, he says, who see us, verse 16, see our good works. There's going to be that subset. There's going to be a group that by God's grace, look at that. And they give glory to your father who is in heaven. And let me just emphasize nothing morally superior about that. It's not to draw attention to ourselves. Christ is not suggesting that in any shape, form, or fashion here. The passage we look at in 1 Corinthians, Paul is very clear. If you're going to boast, you can only boast in the Lord. This has nothing to do with us. I, I, I almost sinfully cannot wait to get to the Pharisees because the Pharisees do this so often. They, they're doing all of this to get glory and honor upon themselves, to heap accolades upon themselves. Jesus has a lot to say, a lot to say. And that, that's where he's most biting. 
is when he looks at these Pharisees and he calls them out for living a life that is for the purpose of having others to look at them and say, oh, you're so pious. You just have it all together. Man, he just fillets them. I love it. Maybe I sinfully love that. But he says, just live a life in a way that they'll see your good works, not praise you, but that they will praise God from whom these blessings flow. We are the guardians of truth. We are the guardians of beauty. We are the guardians of goodness. We are lights for the gospel. We are salt in a decaying world. And friends, wherever the Lord has called you to be salt and light, whether it's your family, your neighborhood, your school, your profession, your business, your national life, wherever it is, you are rubbed in there for this brief life Go be salt and light for Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for hearing our prayer to connect us to your word in person through your word written. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would use us as salt and light in a dark and dying world, to the glory and honor of Christ we pray. Amen.